Great. So we've got Joe on the podcast again. This is episode two of Joe Hyde. Um, your host, Adam Albari. This is The End with Adam. Um, first episode with Joe was just about your background and, you know, where you kind of came from, the things you learned along the way, kind of going through the military, going through uh, na- just the Navy and traveling the world. So for everybody that wants to get a good background on Joe, uh, part one would be the great place to kind of get all that info. But um, I wanted to go deeper with Joe because I've known him personally. Um, and I've actually had some good conversations outside of just his background. So I wanted to have those on the podcast too. Um, mainly Joe, I wanted to kind of talk about given your experience, what your thoughts are right now is just where the country's headed, what, you know, what's happening geopolitically. These are the things I'd be interested to hear about. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely down to have a dialogue about this. So hit me with what you got. What are you thinking? So my biggest thing, right, is, uh, I've always had this idea in the last two years that a lot of the um, tactics that we would use to destabilize countries, to um, basically pollute the well of information within those countries, um, all those kinds of tactics that we would use to, you know, overthrow, um, you know, whatever country we were trying to invade, uh, whether it be in South America or in the Middle East, I feel like those tactics have been imported back home. Um, And we're actually using it or not we, but some intelligence apparatus is actually using it against the American people. I think this started, I want to say, about two years ago. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, you know, we have a long and complicated history generally. But like we were speaking before, I don't know if you're going to use the the brief cut we made about the last 20 years and the ball rolling down the hill. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll use that. Yeah, but you could definitely go back into it if you want. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the last two years is not even the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviet Union made disinformation official policy of the Cold War in the 50s. And since the Cold War, for instance, you know, we've had people attempting to manipulate elections. It's primarily the Soviets, right? In this country, you mean? Yeah, in this country. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You have, you have a history of, like, Russian uh, intelligence officials and officers, um, you know, doing things like joining uh, the Democratic-Republican parties and monitoring sort of how they've changed over, you know, decades, that kind of thing. And these are the, you know, in the Cold War, these were official Russian agents. After the end of the Cold War, you know, it's turned into uh, a sort of authoritarian intelligence state over there. Mm-hmm. But the the infrastructure network they set up still remains. And a key part of this was um, disinformation and asymmetric warfare to include um, basically getting involved in media, getting involved in things like... Uh, academia right and i'm not saying that this isn't there isn't an organic element to this but what Mm. i'm saying is the roots of the post-marxism we're seeing today in this country is largely the fruits of the cold war era finally blossoming but it's not under direction of anybody in particular it's sort of a leftover it's leftover fruit on the ground from that. Right. 
Does that make sense? It does. It does. And especially when you look into academia and um, how they're how the rhetoric of the last five or six years and even before then, right, where they were they were creating these theories about 20 years ago, these sorts of like what we would call now like sort of divisive sociological theories. Um, about 20, 30 years ago, you can find the first inklings of it. And now it's really come to fruition, whereas people not only it, it's gone from the academic papers and into the mainstream discourse, which is kind of the point of most academic sort of, you know, uh, projects, right, is they want to influence culture. Um, so the the spectacular success of that kind of, like you said, post-Marxist thinking um, to influence uh, a lot of people in this country um, is definitely, you know, becoming more and more apparent. But I think, like, people get so caught up, right, in the names or the, the, the um, what's the word, or the, the historical value of certain words, right, like Marxism, socialism, communism. I, would you agree that it just makes more sense to call these, like, authoritarian efforts um, rather than giving them some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of box that people have to check, you know, when they're thinking about whatever idea you're giving them? Because so many of these words are so weighted. Do you know what I mean? Well, I don't know what you mean explicitly. Be like, hit me with a little more clarity. You would sure, prefer yeah. use. You would prefer we don't use words like Marxism or fascism. Yeah, or fascism, because what they really boil down to, right? When you look at what, like, um, I won't even use academia anymore because that's kind of a you know a tired example. We all know academia is very much like in that sort of Marxist phase of you know uh, the, you know the kind of thinking that involves uh, your group or your race or your culture is you know outside or is outside of the direct influence of x race or culture and therefore you have to be you know categorized and put into particular groups and like well, that even goes into you know sexuality and how that's categorized and put into different groups like that's a very kind of marxist thing right well kind of i mean what what we're dealing with now isn't strictly speaking marxism mm -hmm. marxism i think marx would look at this and say, this is nothing but a reversion back to tribalism. Okay. The whole point of Marxism, the appeal to Marxism initially, was that the only real differences are class differences. Right. So that all these things like difference because of race, difference because of sexual orientation, mm -hmm. blah, 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 on mm -hmm. ad infinium mm -hmm. was, was against those, that original worldview. Mm -hmm. What, what, what isn't against the original worldview of Marxism, which makes it kind of post-Marxist, that's, that's what I mean, like after Marx, mm -hmm. Marxism, mm -hmm. is that um, they still view the world through a prism of oppressed and oppressor. That's more what I mean. Okay, yeah, I, I, that's what I mean, is that that paradigm is the functioning paradigm of most liberal college educations, especially when you're talking about the social sciences. And that yeah. is, and, and that's been extrapolated to its farthest possible corners. And and my my uh, reason for calling it authoritarianism is when you do get to that extreme of either side, Marxism or fascism, you do find yourself in authoritarianism. Like that's kind of the street corner that they all meet at when you go to the the final step of all of these kinds of ideologies. So that's why I wanted to say like authoritarian thinking is it has become the norm in a lot of. Uh, universities and institutions. That was sort of my point. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's a point to that. It, it becomes authoritarian because they don't want to deal with any kind of criticism. Mm -hmm. 
That's mm. what makes it authoritarian. If mm. it were like, yeah, I believe there's an infinite range of genders in perpetuity, mm. and 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 uh, you got to convince me otherwise, and you allow me to convince you otherwise, and then you accept when I provide empirical evidence within the within the ideas of you know objectivity and reason and quantitative measurement. That's not authoritarianism, even if you agree post-Marxist nonsense, right? Right, right, because right. It'll be changed. Where it becomes authoritarianism is when dissent is punished. That's when it becomes authoritarian. And the, the, in my mind, and the, the various isms, you know, fascism, Marxism, uh, in particular, are social constructs Literally, that's why they believe capitalism is a social construct. And I have to point this out as a kind of delineation. Capitalism was a name given to the observation of sort of a natural process occurring with the fall of feudalism. Mm -hmm. Nobody sat down and said, this is the way capitalism is going to work. Now my minions go and create capitalism. (laughs) But it's not what happened, right? Smith and Marx in particular, were remarking on this, this conflux of events that led to a new class structure that undid the feudal class structure of Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. Socialism was constructed by various thinkers. They were looking at this natural process, and they said, we're going to theorize where it leads to, right? Right, and that, right. Guys like Saint-Simon... And Karl Marx developed socialism. So in that way, Marxism is a social construct. And similarly, fascism was developed by Benito Mussolini. Explicitly. Mm-hmm. Him and Gio, Giovanni Gentile. Mm-hmm. And so that too is a construct. So what you have is these two schools of thought that were constructed view everything constructed because they were constructed, in my view. That's, that's the large problem. And then because they think that there is no reality as we know it, that everything is constructed, right. they remake the world in their mold, in their vision. And if you don't go along, you're part of the problem. Right. right. Like we've reached the point where reason and logic, right, which are products of really the enlightenment yeah which was, which was a collective uh, basically this is my this is my abridged version theory of this but the europeans were the last to inherit a world culture what okay. happened in europe in the renaissance and what happened in europe in the age of discovery and the industrial revolutions and all this other stuff was not a distinctly european phenomenon. it was a movement of knowledge around the world from Asia, through the Ottoman Empire, through the Islamic empires, from right. the, back to the Greeks. And then this knowledge filtered back in after a thousand years of feudalism, the dark, the dark ages, yeah. And Europeans said, hey, we're going to use this knowledge and build on it. And that's how we got to where we are now. That, that, that matters in the context of what these people are trying to destroy isn't white civilization or European civilization. It's the collective achievements 
of every great civilization in the course of history. That's so, what they're trying to destroy. That is a very interesting um, perspective to have to kind of link um, European discovery and enlightenment to the rest of the, the human experience of discovery and enlightenment throughout the ages. I think very few people look at that as a continuation. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that some people in our community, in our world, would look at that as not a um, continuation, but an aberration um, of what was beginning uh, to be some sort of, you know, true and true enlightenment and, and sort of fr freedom throughout the world and liberalism throughout the world. But, you know, that's one perspective, right? But it's very interesting to be able to link that all together. But I'm curious to know, I mean, as things stand right now, with what you know about just, you know, having traveled the world, having seen a lot of different cultures, where would you place this country in level and in, in terms of like stability, in terms of its, its uh, um, probability that it will move forward in the next 10 to 15 years as it stands right now? As it stands right now, what in comparison to other current countries? Um, just in comparison to your experience, like I'm sure you've been to countries that probably didn't have the best currency in the world. They're pretty, they're pretty unstable or countries that, you know, maybe used to be doing well and aren't doing well. You know, I'm sure you've had a good like I mean, cross section, you know? Yeah. I think, um, we have things to learn. We aren't perfect for sure. Mm. And some places do things better. Right. Mm. Um, for example, one thing I like, right? We're, we're very strict with private property here. People freak out if you step on their lawn. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. My experience in England, for example, recently, was people didn't care if you walked through their property on a hike or some such thing, or even yeah. pitched a tent, as long as it wasn't obvious and in their front yard and was on right. the And you kept moving. You didn't hang out. Right, so there was a level of re there was an expectation that you were going to be civil, right? Mm -hmm. But they weren't militant about kicking you off their land. Similarly, in Norway, you know, we talk about uh, government healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, the Norwegian healthcare system operates um, immaculately, except for waiting times. Waiting times were a little absurd in my experience. I had an issue, several mm -hmm. issues get taken care of while I was over there. But everything else was very simple, very cheap, even for me as a non-citizen, right? And when mm -hmm. I compare that to the Veterans Affairs government health care here, it's like night and day. It was a right. way better system. And so right. I think in like in in certain aspects we can improve our existing functions. But in terms of our institutions I mean, like, uh, our system of law is pretty fucking awesome. The only mm. thing I would say um, is, is bad isn't the system. It's the fact that we have way too many laws. Right? Okay. So it's right. not the idea of our system being fundamentally flawed and needs to be destroyed. It's the fact that we have laws dictating whether you can sell lemonade on the road. Right. Or laws dictating that you can't sell cigarettes that you brought across a state line, and thus, right. and that's where Eric Garner got killed. You know what right. I mean? Right, right, right. like that, but that that there's a distinction between too many laws that 
agents of the state must enforce equally, right? Mm-hmm. They have to enforce yeah. the they have to enforce the lemonade law, just right. like they have to enforce m- murder, because right. it's equality under the law, equal enforcement under the law. And I realize, practically speaking, that doesn't always happen, but mm-hmm. uh, that is a good thing. It's just we have too many dumb laws. That's my view. I mean, okay. State. Yeah, I could see. Yeah, I could see that. And I mean, right now with um, just our sort of social situation in this country, um, I've noticed the sort of fractionalization. Like one thing that um, I thought was sort of apocryphal was, do you remember last Thanksgiving? They were like, here's how they had those all those videos. Of, here's how to talk to your family about political ideas because like, they could tell that there was this percolating political discontent in this country that they were literally putting out like YouTube and Facebook videos of like how to properly have Thanksgiving dinner with your families. And I think that was kind of like a trumpet sound of the apocalypse where it's like, we're getting to the point now where, like you said, our, our, our realities are no longer agreed upon, you know? And as a result of that, I think that fractionalization is, is, so deep and so real in this country and it's it's very new i would say it's happened only within the last 10 years what do you think uh would be the outcome of uh, what do you think is the outcome of that this 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 balkanization of the country yeah right, right. nothing good if we don't, don't get some good leaders in office soon uh, um and i mean that in the sense of not necessarily accomplishments you know if you look mm. at trump Trump passed USMCA, which may or may not be a good thing, remains to be seen. He did things like getting NATO, right? Yeah. To pay their, to pay their equivalent, um, to pay their contractual obligations. Right. Uh, which nobody was make, trying to make them do. And then he did the uh, federal sentencing reform, First Step Act. And those are real accomplishments. But he, as a leader, is not a uniter. Right. right. He relies on polarizing the population to keep them off balance to kind of uh, uh, then, then encourage and align certain factions against other factions to get things passed. And so I don't think he's a good leader in that mm. respect. But I do think he has been quite an effective bureaucrat um, for his tenure in office. I don't, I don't think Joe Biden's a leader, and Joe Biden's not even an effective bureaucrat which is something that um, Trump has on him. Uh, but we need real leaders with vision. Is the right. problem. And all the people who are motivated are the people that buy into this uh, post-Marxism crap. And uh, mm. uh, nobody with any, with any grounded theory and reality is motivated to lead us. Or if they are, they're certainly not speaking up or in a hurry because they know it's going to be uh, a tough swim, as right. it were. Right. So, I mean, sorry? So I think I would just say in, in some, I think, you know, the real way around this is leadership. You know, and, and let me be, also be clear. For the, for the people who are like, uh, the, like the average BLM supporter is mm-hmm. average communist and the average Marxist. Right. Uh, doesn't know anything about Marx or necessarily the people that founded BLM and what they stand for. Yeah. Other stuff. Sure. I mean, they're they're uh-huh. subject to 
I think they can be convinced if people would make serious arguments and uh, try and convince them in a different way. Well, Joe, this is why I brought it up in the beginning. Like, do you not feel like there is some effort on some level by some um, influence organization to purposefully fractionalize and balkanize the country, much like we would do in other countries? You know, like when you're trying to subdue and control a country, what do you do? You create two different factions that are fighting each other. You back one. You know what I mean? Like, it's the, it's that simple divide and conquer kind of thing. And I'm seeing it happen on our own shores where we're getting people who, uh, you know, uh, are clearly being divided over purely ideological lines. Like you said, things that don't actually exist truly in reality, but are more their, the way that their construct is making them uh, view things, view reality. That's to me, seems like it's by design that we, that we don't have true leadership in these sorts of uh, protest movements or reform movements. It sort of seems very much by design. I mean, it's kind of by design. The powers that be certainly encourage it, you know. Mm. The situation is we're run by an elite here, uh, you know, and we get to vote, sure, but uh, it's almost, the problem is twofold. The problem is we're run by an elite, Mm. and the problem is the system... the way it's the way you get ahead in it or the way you make an impact within the system um, requires you to become an elite. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you, like even if you're a good outsider, noble upstanding guy and you believe in stuff, you still got to make compromises on the way business is done within yeah. the institution as a whole. You know, you have a guy like Ron Paul, who, regardless of whether you think he's a nut or he's a hero, um, still carried on many business-as-usual transactions in his time as a government official. And uh, it's because it's sort of required, right? And so I think think the the directing you're talking about or the encouragement by... uh, by a peculiar group of people, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, it makes sense to an extent. Uh, there is definitely a group that has power and is interested in keeping power. Right. And um, they use people who frankly don't know a whole lot to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And they rely on those people not learning. And they rely on those people not, not questioning and not dedicating enough time to to find, you know, the truth or a balance between opposing propagandas, right? A middle way. And um they 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 certainly encourage um behavior that keeps people in that state of mind and keeps them on top. But yeah. Uh, I don't think um, I don't think they're so smart like it's consciously directed. Okay. Uh, I, I I don't think it's something that's within their control. It's almost like grabbing a tiger by the tail. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You, you have the tiger and you got it by the tail, but the tiger is a tiger, and if you and if you're not good to it, it's going to turn around and eat your ass. And I think mm. that's what we're dealing with right now. You know, right. 
Right. So what would you say you look for in a, in a leader? Like what, what would, what would bring us out of this? I had a mutual friend of ours, Mike Reese, who said something hilarious. He said, um, we would need a Jedi to get us out of the situation that we're in right now. Um, I, you know, I hope we don't need somebody as skilled as a Jedi, but w- w- what do you think? When, I mean, we just need somebody who puts values over, over, um, politics in an absolute sense. Absolutely. My principles are superior to any political decision I make. And, um, that's a tough sell because it's radical, right? What right. We need is a zealot, but we need a zealot for what's right and for reality. That's yeah. What and so in that sense, um, there aren't many people like that left, I would say, in our current world because we're all comfortable, right? Right. People, um, not a lot of people do uh do put their principles before their privileges anymore not a lot of people will accept poverty if it means doing the right thing right yeah me doing the right thing is poverty many won't accept poverty they'll just do the wrong thing and stay comfortable well i would say that that's kind of also by design right i'm sorry to cut you off what you say no, you're good. You're good. Keep going. I was, yeah, I was saying like I feel like that's kind of also by design. Like you've seen in the last thirty years, the middle class being hollowed out, and anybody's real expectations of sort of living that middle ground life where you've got you know enough money to survive and everything's okay. You can get married, get a house. Those war that world is slowly fading away into you know black and white you know uh, Time Warner movies, and we're entering a world now where it's almost all or nothing. Like people are slated with the choices of either you join a, a you know a corporation a, a financial institution or basically some sort of other institution government that uh you are now a you know a, a subservient yeah. of it's almost like a, a, a neo-feudalism um and as a result of that people are much less likely to take any kind of chances politically ethically anything because of their fear that they may drop into that sort of untouchable caste or that uh, to quote, you know, like 1984, the, the proletariat that is showing its face at this point, um, you know, there really is the the need to stay within the party, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 climbing over each other to stay in the sun. That's what's happening. Right. And, um, I think uh, I think your observation is very astute. And the problem isn't my, the problem with respect to uh, the cost to not wanting to play the game mm. is the fact that there is such a high cost. Huge and, cost. And, yeah. and that is not a federal issue in my mind. That's not even an elitist issue. The elitists primarily are concerned with the international stage. And um, it's very lucrative, and that's where all the money is, right? But in terms right. of living locally and living comfortably and living a good life, um, the big problem in my view is generational and it's at the la- local and state level in this country. And what I mean by that is when the baby boomers were growing up, you could have a potato chip company running out of your garage, right? And mm. if you wanted to sell knickknacks, you didn't need a permit. If you wanted to do hair, 
you didn't need, you know, a certification. Yeah. Yeah. Certification. Right. And, um, they instituted all that crap. The boomers did. And what we see now is it grandfathered in their industries, but it left young and new generations with nothing but a welfare. You either go on welfare, you go on drugs, or you get a dumpy minimum wage job and hope you can find a promotion. Or you pay exorbitant amounts of money to go to college and maybe get a nice job, depending on what your degree program is. Right. right? So you've been reduced to four options instead of what is an infinite amount of options when you can be an entrepreneur. And so that's the real problem in the country today. It's the problem with income inequality. It's the problem with um, what I would say is the, the balkanization of races in the country, right? Because if you take the black community in particular, they're 10% of the population, and mm-hmm. in a system where the costs are too high to do your own thing, you rely on yeah. them after that. Yeah. And when you rely on nepotism, who has more connections? The 50% portion of the population or the 10% right. portion of the yeah. population? And so it balkanizes already, already stratified groups even further. And um, it's it's not a recipe for success because we're turning ourselves into uh, a penal colony, really. (laughs) Prison planet. But uh, I think um, there is a quality to this country that has started to become more and more punitive, right? There is like where I come from, Maryland is very much like just an uh, an unabashed police state. Like they, you when you live a huge police state. Yeah, when you live in when you live in Maryland, you know what to expect. There's cops everywhere. They it's that's how it's run. They've got the best technology. Um, they've got the you know they they're like I would say from my time being. I would say in 12, probably uh, 12, 13, um, when I first remember Howard County cops, they were in that like first phase of militarization, you know, where like they kind of had nicer cars and nicer things, you know. By the time yeah. I left, man, I mean, those were mil- th- those are ops. I mean, especially as you get close to the Capitol. Uh, the only other place I've seen that kind of like, you know, occupation of armed, you know, uh, law enforcement. Is the military, but also when I was in France, I saw that a lot. Saw a lot of like paramilitary, military guys. Everybody's dressed up in big, big ass gear. That was the only other place besides Maryland that I've seen. I mean, and of course New York and L.A. But you know, when you go to those places, you kind of know that's what I'm signing up for. I'm by the capital. But then you know, when I go to where my parents live in Michigan, like right outside of Detroit, starting to see the same kind of like straight up you know basically look like military guys but they're police officers you know so it's like there is this um there is this uh kind of i want to say not preparation but but there's this acknowledgement within the law enforcement community that things are going to get much harder to police and they've been prepared for you know five six seven years now so it's very interesting to see that kind of happen in front of us you know yeah, I mean, in some ways, though, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, they, the more they militarize, the more difficult people become. Exactly, there, yeah. There may, be, there may be a correlation, but 
it's not necessarily a causation. The military and and the issue all comes back to how many laws do we have to? How many laws do we have to send a cop out to solve? You know, they talk about social workers taking over police, and uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that outright. But I don't think that's the solution. I think the solution is less bullshit laws. And then when they have less to do, yeah, uh, then they won't be showing up. Guns blazing. The thing, things that don't require guns blazing. I mean, people got to understand, the cops are not there to help you out with your problem. <laughs> the, the cops are there to punish you for disobeying. Period. Yeah. Yeah. They're there for and the very existence of them uh, predicates uh, uh, behavioral change when you're aware that can happen, right? Right. So because right. we have police and because they're now militarized with tanks and such, yeah, um, you're going to have less people that are on the fence about being criminals, be criminals, um, because they'll get a, a tank busting through their fucking living room wall, whereas the people who are going to commit to criminality, even in light of this, are probably the tougher, meaner dudes, generally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. That does. It does. Um, I also know, too, one of the, um, I'm sure, un- unintended outcomes of the sort of, like you were saying, the um, this abundance of laws is like, um, the amount of people that I knew who were on probation or have some sort of record for tiny things that are like totally unharmful, un- nonviolent, usually marijuana related or alcohol related that now follow them around for the rest of their lives. And then, of course, you know, the closer you get into that system, the harder it is to get out. And then you create, you know, people yeah. who, yeah, you create people who have now become accustomed. Your whole, your huh? whole opportunity for the rest of your life is now fucked. Yeah, because but even on seconds. Yeah, but even on top of that, like now you have people that are accustomed or have been become normalized to being in trouble. If if I've been getting in trouble since I was 14 with the law, not with my parents or the fucking school system, but with the law, that's normal to me. So now I'm going to ride with no seatbelt on and, you know, have no weed on me like or have a bunch of weed on me because it's like, I mean, they caught me before, like I'll just, you know, I'll do it again. It's not that big that, you know, when, when you get introduced to that stuff so young, it really takes the fear out of it for you. Some people, it doesn't, you know, some people, it shocks them, but it's hilarious how not hilarious and in, in a real sense, but hilarious in the sort of stupefying sense, stupefying sense that it actually hardens a lot of people very, very early in their life to become criminals. Yeah, I mean, anybody young going to jail for a dumb charge is going to, you're not hanging out with scholars. You're, <laughs> no. <laughs> you're, not, no. <laughs> you're not hanging out at the Congressional Library and learning all about, you know, the American Revolution or the Haitian Revolution or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're with a bunch of people that if they had bad home lives, they probably weren't very well educated. And mm-hmm. they may be street smart, right? Or they may be smart generally meaning they're yeah. capable of learning new things quickly, but yeah. they become unproductive because they channel that in the direction of criminality for whatever reason. And if right. you have 
people with minor charges for things that aren't that really important or that really aren't that important in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. going and sharing space with these people for an extended period of time that's you're now saying mold this person yeah shape their future it's like it's one thing to go to prison when you're middle-aged right after you've had your mm-hmm. whole life grow up and know the difference and you still end up being a bad guy it's another thing to go when you're young for a weed violation and be in a cell with a guy that kicked a door in and abused a couple to mm-hmm. steal the tv then you learn you learn the wrong thing oh yeah you know you're right yeah i think that's definitely true so i mean going for- forward i mean do do you see there being in at least this next election any good coming from either candidates if they were to win no i think you see you see the triumph of this uh post marxism in in institutions if biden wins and that's not an attractive quality mm. by stretch of the imagination right in trump you see an agitator that while he's an effective bureaucrat at getting you know things accomplished uh although indirectly um doesn't necessarily accomplish things we want accomplished and um doesn't doesn't uh effectively lead people or inspire people in the same way biden doesn't do that either you know i looked up his accomplishments as part of a little challenge yeah uh, things he sponsored while in congress yeah uh in this and uh, the house and the senate i think it was just i think it was just in the senate but maybe i'm wrong but he accomplished next to nothing <laughs> yeah he was a lifelong Over, bench warmer uh this guy yeah bench warmer and yeah. it's like are you going to elect somebody like that how do you how am i supposed to be why the only reason to vote for that guy is if you're so afraid trump's going to kick your door in and like right. burn you at the stake then you need to vote for biden right. but beyond that there's nothing encouraging about voting for the guy no. and, he has, yeah. Yeah. and he's up to his eyeballs in corruption just like yeah. hillary Clinton. and it's yeah. like it's like, look, we know when Trump goes, yeah, I'm an international real estate magnate. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows he's involved in shady stuff. Right. Illegal stuff. Yeah. Nobody knows he's pure as the driven snow. <laughs> but the difference is, is he doesn't, pre- he never pretended to be pure as the driven snow. Right. He goes, oh, yeah, of course I don't pay my taxes because there's loopholes and I use them. Yeah. So off. And it's like, <laughs> Even if that's an undesirable sentiment, it's not, I'm pure as the driven snow. My name is Hillary Clinton. Right, right. Your charity. Oh, by the way, magically, when I don't get elected, 90% of it dries up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or the head of my foundation was caught trying to smuggle children out of Haiti and into the United States. Then she had to change her name, and now she's the head of the Amber Alert system. Yeah, you know, like uh, there are things that are so um, dark about the uh, um, about the people that are running the Democratic Party. Um, that the real reason that I was so excited to vote this year was that there may be a real chance for a non-establishment Democrat to finally come through. I thought at least 
well, I didn't think this because we spent two years on a Russia lie and then we spent another two years on a, another lie. And, this, you know, all, all those um, uh, investigations and impeachments that just made Trump basically look Teflon because they were, you know, nonsense uh, charges. Um, but we spent two years doing that. But there was still a time in my or four years doing that. There, there was time where I was like, maybe they're going to understand this time that we don't want an establishment guy, that the Democrats want new blood, we want fresh blood. And we and I saw them pull the same trick they pulled in 2016, uh, you know, where they basically, they already have their pre-selected candidate, they'd let the, you know, uh, musical chairs game play, and then the music stops, they choose their guy, everybody else, uh, you know, d- despite this, the, the groundswell support for anybody else, uh, all those people then turn around and endorse the, uh, the establishment candidate. And for me, I was like, okay, well, now it's shown me unequivocally, without a doubt, that this party has been corroded uh, to a point of non-function. So at that point, it's like, and, and I'm not the only person, I'm not the only Democrat that feels that way, I'm not the only liberal that feels that way. But um, the fact that their uh, their hand, their fingers are so off the pulse of their own party just shows me that they don't care. It's not that they're stupid, it's not that they don't know what's going on they've got analysts and consultants that they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to tell them what's going on and they still ignored the people's wants uh for this election so i mean that that makes it pretty easy for me who to vote for you know yeah i mean look sanders sanders's problem is that he's a fraud first of all the guy preaching mm-hmm. he's he's a uh, uh, principled pure you know, socialist, democratic socialist, whatever it is. Right. And then as he gets a deal made with the party, he just rolls over and rolls over the reins yeah. and says, have at it. And it's yeah. like, yeah, get it. He's not worth $150 million like Nancy Pelosi, but he's yeah. still, he's still got two or three nice homes and some mm. property and his mm. wife, man, university. Right. And what he right. does is he likes sticking by his guns because it makes him the cool guy in the room. Right. I don't right. Even, even know if he believes it, honestly. Uh, right. I'd be I'd be interested to hear what he says in private when no one else is listening, because yeah. the way it rolls over when they essentially, you know, in the 2016 election, I think it was they cheated him out of the nomination. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he rolled over, and then mm-hmm. in this election, uh, I don't even remember if they counted Iowa. In the caucuses, and yeah, he was they, coming mm-hmm. out on top. He looked oh, yeah. like he come out on top with that. And uh, maybe I'm, you know, maybe they did count it, and maybe the numbers came in, and I'm way off on that. But I recalled distinctly that he had a lot of m- motivation and uh, energy up until it got to the South Carolina or the North Carolina primary. Was, yeah, South Carolina was when they tried to flip the script. Then the media yeah. went into a full swing of, oh, Biden's making a comeback, even though it was marginal compared to what Bernie had been able to accomplish. But once people listen to the media and say, oh, okay, well, all the adults have voted, and now it looks like it's going to be Biden, so we might as well, you know, that's what, that's what they bank on. It's like, I mean, Yeah, you also had James Clyburn, who I believe is a congressman, from South Carolina, mm. endorsing Biden, mm. right? And he's got mm. tremendous clout, supposedly, with the black community in South Carolina. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did so hear this. Yeah. Maybe they did come out, maybe the black community did come out and push Biden to victory in South Carolina. 
because Bernie's a little too uh, uh, new wave. Mm. I don't know. Well, I don't. I so speak to that effectively. But what I can say is that uh, if James Clyburn is picking Biden. That doesn't say how great Joe Biden is. That says how bad James Clyburn is. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and it also shows like the, the naivety of, uh, of Americans looking at that kind of an endorsement, not understanding that it's purely a political move, that it's got nothing to do with whether or not Biden actually cares about the black community. He hasn't said a single thing in terms of what he wants to do to actually help the black community. So when you see these career black politicians voting party line Democrats, that's political theater. That's them. I mean, double- he used to call black young black men super predators, and he used to oh yeah, to keep them in prison for decades. Oh yeah, so oh yeah. That mm-hmm. that's what you're going to endorse, you know? Yeah, but then what? You, a lot of people don't uh, not not that you don't understand this, but there is a, a lot of people listening to this who may not understand that a lot of older generation black Democrats are they are Republicans, they are conservatives. Um, they just don't want to vote for the Republican party for, you know, historical reasons, but the way that they think is conservative. They think they believe in law and order. They don't, a lot of them don't have any, um, not any, uh, empathy, but they don't have a lot of empathy for the crack epidemic. They saw it as a problem in their community. And a lot of them think, okay, well, listen, not everything was done perfectly, but crack got off the streets and there were people trying to do something about it. I mean, there are conversations like that, um, amongst black people who are hardline, Democrats, establishment Democrats, and, and it's sad to hear, but the you know the programming is still very much alive and well um, within certain demographics and certain generations. And South Carolina, being a uh, specifically the, the African American community in South Carolina, being a historical Black community, a truly American Black community, they would probably vote. They would vote in concession with a I mean, you know. I mean, Here's the thing, in the spirit of the age of identity politics reigning mm. supreme over anything, right. I think I think a real five D chess move, strictly speaking, for the black community would be to make their own party. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of different black thinkers consider that and talk about that, but it really does come down to population size and why uh, black people don't do that. But what has been proposed to a lot of black leaders is uh, to instead have just like the Latino community does, have meetings with both sides of the political party and basically say, what are you going to do for us? What What are the policies that you have that are going to make us vote for you? And then they vote for whoever that group is. They almost have like a, a, a uh, black, almost like a voting union where all black people pull in their votes and then they go to each particular party and they say, okay, we've got all these votes ready. Who's going to do something for us? And uh, that was, uh, it was, I think it was, I believe, Dr. Umar Johnson who had proposed that, uh, I, w- I want to say about two years ago. I don't know how far people have gotten with that, but it's very hard to shake the Democratic stranglehold on the African-American voting bloc. Um, and, you know, that comes for a lot, from a lot of reasons. But, uh, you know, what disappoints me the most is just the, <sighs> it's like, listen, guys, and, and I've said this and I've gotten a lot of flack for it. But it's like we have to make a decision, right? If we believe that black people should be treated fairly in this country, then we have to stop voting for people who don't agree with that. I'm not saying that Trump definitely agrees with that. But what I will say is he has not made it his career, like a lot of Democratic establishment operatives have made it their career to destroy the black community. He has not made that his life's goal. Kamala Harris has. (laughs) Kamala Harris made that her life's goal. 
was to destroy and, and yeah, that's amazing. They pay and, and it's like we have to decide amazing. how we have to decide how important that is to us as a community. Do we really give a shit or are we just going to vote because that's what we think? Oh, we don't want Trump in. We don't want orange guy. in. it's like, no, I think we can have a more nuanced discussion about this. Like what has Trump really done to try to um, uh, uh, specifically um, negatively affect the black community? I don't, I can't think of one thing. I, I really can't. So I, but I can think of 10 things that the entire uh, democratic apparatus, like Joe Biden and, uh, Hillary Clinton, all those people have done to basically line their pockets with the skin of of, of, bl- of black enslaved people in, in prisons. Um, so it's like, I, you know, if if I'm really going to have a black vote, I can't vote for slavers. I, I can't do that. Uh, so um, I, I don't understand why that's not talked about more, why that's not a just a general talking point. But well, that's kind of, um, yeah. I think some input to that would be, the Republicans don't try. Right. And right. that's a big problem. I think right. if the Republicans went out there and said, hey, look, man, you know, Nixon's Southern strategy had all those Southern Democrats come mm. over our way but to win the election. And we want to point out that, you know, now looking at that, you know, we can't change it, but we want you to be a part of this party. And we want to implement ideas you're interested in. Yeah. And, as part of the as part of the conversation in every conversation we have right, right. i think it would go a long way and you have you know trump's probably the only guy for the republicans that made any attempted out to the black mm-hmm. community that's out of pure in my opinion pure self-interest yeah as narcissism but at least here's the thing yeah. narcissism from trump is less destructive to my community than narcissism from hillary clinton because yeah, Clinton will turn me into a lampshade if it makes sense for her. Whereas Trump doesn't care that much. He doesn't even see me. That yeah. I prefer to. I prefer to have a guy that doesn't even see me than have a guy that wants to turn me into furniture. You know what I mean? Yeah, and this this uh, this idea that um, or this notion that the Republican Party doesn't try to court Black Americans is really astounding to me when you consider. And again, this is like my collective world theory, right? Right. Right. And, but my theory on the contributions of the United States explicitly mm-hmm. the world's tapestry of ideas following, right? You had the right. founding fathers basically, in an abridged version, undermined the idea of divine right. And the example right. they set destroyed that institution for the idea that a monarch was mm. divinely ordained or needed to rule absolutely. Mandate of heaven, yeah. The Chinese had the same thing, yeah. And what makes them, along with uh, Toussaint Lavalier, Toussaint mm. Lavalier in Haiti, mm. and uh, the French Revolution remarkable, is that they all undermined that idea. But in America, we did it first. And we did right. it successfully. We were yeah. the first who throw off the yoke of colonial rule, right? And after that, many people followed. But then you have the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, which, in my view, is an extension of the new world dismantling the old. So where the yeah. founders failed, you have civil rights leaders coming for the front 
and basically challenging the idea of tribalism mm-hmm. and destroying it as a legitimate idea in 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 the world's history. Like the totally. idea that you don't need to stick to your tribe just because it looks this way or that way, right? That you can transcend um, yeah. tribal bonds and unity and actually welcome everybody together in equal partnership to to experience life hand in hand. That, to me, was as significant as destroying the notion of divine right in terms of contributing to the tapestry history and to me you know that's the significance of the african-american legacy in america and Mm -hmm. in the world Mm -hmm. i think um like one of the things that was so fascinating to me that um uh i learned was like when south africa was going through apartheid um their their big example that they were looking at was african-americans like how did how were they able to dismantle their own apartheid um and uh you know they kind of looked uh for a lot of different leaders and of course there was like an ongoing correspondence right with the people that wanted to liberate south africa and african americans but you know i always wonder like with those kinds of countries um especially with south africa like they realized that what they were asking for when they wanted to end apartheid was the, the dismantlement of the south african state as they knew it and, all, and because South Africa was a small country, they were able to have that peace and reconciliation where everybody had told everybody what was going on, said who did what, and they were able not to fully move on, but at least begin again in a real way. And I always wonder, like, if America could ever do that, could ever stop what it's doing, hold a gigantic, you know, okay, what can we do about the African-American issue here? Or what can we do to make sure that we're really providing equality and continuing on that legacy and then go on from there, like almost like how we have, you know, the church committee to investigate something or any any other kind of congressional committee. You know, the South Africans had that, but they had it on like a, a huge scale. Um, so I always wonder, like, you know, who who should have been taking cues from who? You know, it's like South Africans were looking at us, but it's like, man, they, they actually did something that we couldn't do. Yeah, I'm not I, I can't speak to the the state of uh, South Africa after the end of apartheid i'm not historically familiar with its successes or failures so Mm -hmm. i can't comment on that but what i can say is that i i i view the civil rights movement in the united states as an extension of liberty in the same way the american revolution was right it extended the idea of freedom to a universalist concept right right? where the founders the founders made an important contribution in freedom from monarchical authority Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. world that was very important but uh the civil rights movement was about freedom of the tyranny of the majority and right that's yeah that was a much greater contribution i think to human history than even, you know, than even the, the founders, but mm-hmm. uh, people don't think about it like that. I find. Yeah. Yeah. They, they really don't. And that's very, um, I think as being someone that really understands the world and, and has read, you know, read about history, you can see it that way, but you know, it, it is a shame that we don't collectively look at it that way. But I think there is a push to start making it, um, 
viewing it in that light rather than it being a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, an aspect of American history, but it really is a sort of world moment um, uh, that 19, is, yeah. That, that's exactly right. It is a world moment. Yeah, and yeah. The distinction is, um, you, you know, the, I think Gandhi may have come before MLK and Malcolm X and, and those those thinkers, but Frederick Douglass came before yeah. uh, Gandhi, and so did uh, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. and all the mm-hmm. men. And um, right. when we start to view African-American contributions as significantly as what I think they are, mm-hmm. then you sort of realize how and why this country is exceptional. And right. Yes, and I agree. Because, yeah. because we have this skewed view of our own reality, we don't come around to that. You know, and a lot of people worship the altar of the founding fathers. And don't get me wrong, their contribution was greater than 99.9% of other contributions in the course of human history by a small group of men. Right. However, it's not the sole contribution this country has made and it's not even the greatest contribution this country has made in historical context and i think when we recognize our contribution to the world accounting for both and accounting for things like the civil war you know you think about the civil mm-hmm. war civil war was the only time in recorded history the slave owning class waged a war against itself to end right the of slavery that is something that I feel as though, you know, because of how history has become politicized, people don't realize the, the true magnitude of what that meant for a society to go to war with itself against a moral hazard that it felt needed to be ended. That, I mean, and a moral hazard that, by the way, didn't affect most of the people who were fighting. Most of the people who were fighting <laughs> were not enslaved. So it's it is one of those things that is truly remarkable that, um, you know, for whatever reason that those people took up arms, that its ultimate purpose was to eradicate something that a part a portion of the country felt to be morally wrong. Um, and and, and the, the bloodiness of that war, too, I think, is a reflection of how deep seated the need for um, racial caste, not class, but racial caste systems to exist in certain parts of this country. Um, you know, I think people in, in the slave cotton belt realized the importance of having, slave, having a slave class and realized how economically um, debilitating it would be to them for generations as it has been without that slave class. Um, so for, for the fact that they, you know, that they, uh, uh, you know, that there were other people on the, in the same country that may not have been affected by that or may not have been a part of that slave class that wanted to end that. Uh, is is a pretty pretty astounding event. Yeah, I mean it, it. It is astounding, and to to you know to really point out the gravity of the situation. Not only were were I mean the slaves were the recipients of the most horrible abuses by a long shot, but the reality is the institution of slavery in America profited slave owners at the expense of not only the slaves but the country. Because huh. we I have haven't not, heard that perspective. Well, why is that? Well, the 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 you know the the woke phrase that often gets repeated is "slavery built America," right? And 
I disagree with that fundamentally. I think America was built in spite of slavery hmm. because you didn't have America's gilded age until 4 million black Americans were freed and able to be paid for their labor and their skills. And they migrated to cities and participated in industry mm-hmm. and built the railroads leading west along with uh, whites and Asians, etc. And what you had in slavery, and even uh, uh, Frederick, Frederick Douglass pointed this out at the end of his narrative, narrative in the life of a slave mm. check it out if you if you i haven't look, read it yeah i'll check it out yeah well if they if if your listeners have it laying around grab it because he talks about going through this whole journey right and looking mm. at the wealth of the plantation house and all this stuff but he finally escapes up to new england mm. and he says everybody's living great up here and nobody's enslaved and the wealth in new england mm. is is not um, conditional on free labor. And what ends up, it's sort of common sense when you think about it, is if you have 4 million more people to work and be paid and then buy things that other people can produce, that's way more things being produced, way Mm. more people buying, and way more uh, wealth generation Mm. occurring, Mm -hmm. right? Right. The nation more than those people not being able to participate and those people being consigned to um, imprisonment their entire wow. life in real terms. Yeah. The nation more. And so I think that's another big problem with the way we view the history is we go, Hey, slavery was, a, when you say slavery built America, you're saying slavery made almost a, a, a contribution in the moral good mm. of America. But mm. I fundamentally disagree with that premise and that implication because the reality is, is free people have contributed far more to humanity than slaves and the indentured. And mm. if we encourage that freedom, we get results that are that are significantly more robust in terms right. of supporting everyone. Right. And the problem, right. you know, the economic problem with slavery is that it was enriching slave owners at the expense of everybody else. Right. Aside Even yeah. Right. Even the, you know, slave hands, you know, even the people that worked on the, the land, they were still at a disadvantage to what to the slave owner who was creating a surf vassal system in a country that was supposed to be a free nation that was supposed to not have that. Um, and even like the term Southern gentry, right? Landed gentry. That's an English term that comes from that sort that uh, surf and vassal system. So, I mean, it, it's very core, whether or not you like black people, if you're an American, you shouldn't have, wa- you should be a, a, against the slave states that existed in the uh, 1860s. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah man. And, you know, these guys that go, you know, uh, God love them in a certain respect because they do know that there's a problem going on. Right. But their worldview is so distorted, they say things like slavery built America. And right. the reality is that it didn't. It was a tragedy. And right. those people should be viewed in that light. You know, we should view mm-hmm. it as a tragedy that didn't build anything because of selfishness and evil. 
not because of, and not as some like neutral thing where, mm. you know, um, cotton was supplied for textiles in the industrial right. revolution. If they <laughs> pay people, if they had to pay those men for their labor and those women, yeah. they, cotton would have still been harvested and everybody would have been better off. Right. Right. Matt, cotton wouldn't have ever been harvested if there was no slavery. It was a matter of they worked, they had no freedom and no rights. They were prisoners. And because of that, they couldn't be paid for their labor. And because they couldn't be paid for their labor, they couldn't participate in this country's expansion. And that's why you didn't see real expansion until 4 million more people got added to the population as contributors. You know, it's hilarious. It's like when you look at what happened to settlers um, when uh, they tried to move out to Indian territories in the 1850s and 60s. And it's like, man, you know, it's cool to have a caravan of 120 people going to meet a tribe of 40,000, you know, Comanches. Wouldn't it have been cooler if there was like 100,000 people going into that territory other than just you and the church and the, you know, a couple of other guys, you know, like it's just like we were short shorting ourselves just because we were lacking numbers in that expansion. That's why so many people got massacred in that initial movement into Indian territory. Not to say that we, you know, we have to, we had to destroy Indian territory, but it was still a war. I mean, there were two, it was a nation state that was existing in the, in the great plains and we had limited numbers. We had small amounts of people moving into these vast territories. that were just getting slaughtered. It's like, how much better would we have fared if everybody had a chance to collectively move? You know, um, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, there are so many problems with our history, you know, and the, the, the notion of like, um, our relationship with the Native Americans is a complex one. Right. When we showed up initially as settlers and colonialists, we made allies with certain tribes mm-hmm. as the British, and then the French made allies with others, mm-hmm. right? And then some didn't ally at all and hated both. Both or hated one over the other, and um, it was a it was a mixed bag. It wasn't like the white man was up against the brown man, and that was that, which seems to be the perspective that's pushed now. Right. That, none of that happened until after the Civil War. That's when all that really took off. When it was the white man's manifest destiny, yeah, to put down of Americans and take the West all the way to the Pacific Ocean. That was the post Civil War period. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that really took off. Yeah. But right. with respect to sending people out and settling, I mean, it was a conflict between two, two nations. Absolutely. There were the native American nations of the plains and there was the United States and the United yeah. States claimed, uh, the nation's territory and we fought a war for it. Regardless yeah. of the right or wrong of the conflict, it was a war that the United States won. Yeah. And, yeah. And uh, now there, there should be some reconciliation, I think. I, I think so. I, I think, uh, I think this country would be a lot better off if everybody just, you know, had the, uh, the bill that they, <laughs> that they've been waiting on to get paid, get paid. And, uh, we could all just start from there, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm really happy that you were able to come on. We're at, we're at about an hour here, so I wanted to wrap up. But was there anything in closing you want to talk about or plug? 
Nothing. I just love a good conversation every now and then. So good to be here, Joe. Yeah, of course, man. And I'll bring you on uh, as much more as you want, because I'm sure there'll be more for us to talk about is the election. You know, we should do an election episode. We should do uh, when we're getting real close. We should do like a real breakdown of the election. I think that'd be fun. Anything you want, you just reach out and I'll work to accommodate. Awesome. All right, Joe. Well, guys, this was the end of part two with uh, Joe Hyde. Uh, and Joe, we will uh, see or speak to each other very soon. But anyways, thanks. Yeah, no problem, Adam. Have a good one. You have a good one, man. All right. Yep.